Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Joining us today is Erwin Levin and Greg Laker of Cohen and Malad, the sponsor of this podcast. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Uh, I want to take a moment to point out the importance of Cohen and Malad and specifically the two of you when it comes to this podcast, because while it has been the brainchild and labor of love for Jamie and I, it never would have been possible without the two of you. If I weren't an attorney, and honestly, maybe if I were even still an attorney in government work, I don't think I would have realized how unique it is and how privileged we are to get to do this because getting to do this is a privilege and I'm super grateful to both of you for that. So thank you for that. Welcome. Of course. Okay. I want to do a little background on each of you before we get started, just so people know who you are. Erwin, why don't you start? Can you tell us why did you even decide to become an attorney and ultimately a plaintiff's attorney? Well, I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was really kind of young. My, my father was a businessman, a small businessman who always wanted to be a lawyer. And so, you know, I grew up on Perry Mason and everybody else, and it was exciting. And I like to argue. And it was just something that I wanted to do. And I, and I recognized, like a lot of lawyers, you know, when you read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and you, and you see it in films, and you see the, uh, the changes that lawyers can make in society. And how much people rely on their lawyers to get them through difficult times. That was something that that really appealed to me. I sort of naturally gravitated towards plaintiff's work. Uh, When I started, I took anything that came in the door. And uh, when you take anything that comes in the door, generally uh, multinational corporations are not walking through that, uh, that doorway. So I started representing people and I've always enjoyed it. And I've always tried in, in my personal life to uh, involve myself in uh, activities that benefit people and and, and people in need. So for me, it's been, uh, it was a natural sort of place for me to land. And I can honestly say that I have loved doing it for my entire career. That's awesome. Greg, can you answer the same question, please? Absolutely. My background is a lot like Irwin's and that my dad was a small businessman in a small town. And I was always taken by the fact that everybody that walked in his store knew him. He knew them. He knew their kids. And I've always had kind of that, you know, personality that allowed me to kind of connect with people. And um, probably the biggest influence on me as a kid was a neighbor that we had who was a lawyer that was just really good to me. And I just always looked up to him. His name was Charlie Lehner. He just carried himself differently and he interacted with me differently than all of my neighbors. And so from a very young age, I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to be like Charlie Lehner and carry myself like he did. And, you know, I was blessed when I was a young lawyer to hook up with Irwin and he and I started doing, like he said, everything that walked in the door from real estate cases to criminal cases to custody cases to 
really anything. Anybody that had $100 in their pocket had a lawyer between Irwin and I when we first started. And we quickly morphed into doing kind of a custody practice and a lot of cases that involving kids, which ultimately led me to where we are today with a plaintiff's practice that deals with a lot of kids. And then now a practice that includes the sexual assault of minors. So um, that's kind of my backstory. You guys have actually been practicing together, what, the better part of 30 to 35 years, something like that? Sorry, I'm not trying to age you. But, <laughs> but that's true. Uh, yes, that, that's how long we've been practicing together. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But no, I mean, that honestly is an accomplishment in and of itself, like to be you guys, what you guys have taken this firm and done with it is amazing. Let's talk then a little bit more about the sexual abuse cases because this work is certainly uniquely difficult and it comes with unique obstacles and pitfalls that simply don't exist in other types of cases. And in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of most attorneys, probably they're more difficult to handle in other cases. And they entail an entirely different and additional set of skills beyond what you already need to have. So I know, Greg, you just touched on it a little bit, but, you know, Erwin, as the managing partner of the firm, why don't you tell us kind of how that practice did evolve from those child custody cases? Sure. So I worked my way through law school as a bailiff in the Marion County Circuit Court here in Indianapolis. And in being a bailiff, I saw probably a thousand different divorce cases and custody cases. And then I became the commissioner of that court for one year. Uh, before going to private practice, and I was the judge on a lot of custody cases. So when I got into private practice and, and when Greg joined us, um, it was natural that we would be able to do those kind of cases and be able to do them very well. There are a lot of lawyers, just like in the uh, sexual assault arena, who think that they can do them, that, you know, if they walk through your door, how hard can it be? Well, to be a good custody lawyer is really hard because you have to have a certain kind of sensitivity towards the issues, but not only that, towards the people, because these people are going through the legal equivalent of a heart attack and can be the worst point of their lives. And um, you have to be sensitive to that, but at the same time, you have to accomplish something and you have to be sensitive because at least in Greg and my practice, we never went to trial on a case where we didn't really feel that it was in the child's best interest to be with our client. And if we couldn't do that, we just referred the case out. So as a result of that, we were highly successful at it and we developed the kind of sensitivity that brought people to us in that situation. But not just that, we worked really, really hard on them. We treated it just like complex litigation. I mean, we did depositions, we did investigations, we did everything that needed to be done. And so then, of course, we sort of transitioned as time went on to uh, doing lots of other cases. And, and Greg can probably speak better to the evolution uh, than I can. So uh, I'll just let Greg talk about that. Thanks, Erwin. Well, Erwin's right. I mean, what we learned doing custody cases is that there is this immense amount of emotion going on within the family. And ultimately, you know, we were not just attorneys, but, you know, counselors and friends and support people for our client. And um, we heard from them all hours of the day, and that was part of the practice. And as a result of that custody practice where 
really, Irwin's right. We turned down lots of cases that if we didn't feel that those kids were better off with our client, we'd send them to somebody else. But because we were so kid focused in our custody practice, that morphed into a personal injury practice where early in my, my career, I was representing lots of families who had kids that were either tragically killed or hurt very badly. And as a result of doing those cases at a very early age in my practice, we started doing sexual assault cases. And, and one of the first cases I did with, when I was a young lawyer involved a, a young girl that had some challenges and was in a group home where she was raped by another fellow student in that group home. And um, I mean, all of the emotion that you would see in a custody case was in that case with what the family went through and the struggles in dealing with the school and getting her child moved out of that school was there. And so I quickly uh, learned that there was a real need for lawyers that would take those cases. And over time, what I learned was there was a lot of lawyers that did those cases that really didn't do them very well because they didn't have that connection to the family and to the kids that we certainly had in our practice. And so, you know, as our practice grew and as we did more and more of those cases, we saw a real need for lawyers that could handle the worst of the worst when it comes to sexual abuse cases. And, uh, and that's what led to this practice group. I'm glad that you touch on that a little bit more because it, you guys are kind of being modest about it a little bit because it's like, oh, well, you know, we were doing this and then we see this issue and it just morphed that way. But it's not quite that simple because just as you touched on now, it's it's really hard. And unfortunately, even today, we're still seeing a lot of lawyers doing these cases who frankly shouldn't be doing them. As we talked about, there's a whole different set of skills that you need to have. And one thing, again, that sets Cohen and Malad apart is the fact that we do have those skills and you in fact make sure that every single staff member whether it be an attorney or support staff member who's going to come in contact with a survivor of sexual abuse has had very specific training can you touch on that a bit yeah i'd be happy to so you're right shaughnessy and one thing that i learned fairly early on with these cases is that the way sometimes my co-counsel and other times the defense counsel handle these cases and the question that they ask of the parents and the kids in depositions and just their attitude toward somebody that has been through this horrific experience literally would make the hair on your neck stand out. It was just horrific. And very early on in our practice, when we made the decision to do this, I made the decision that everybody that worked on these cases when it was going to be trauma-informed. And what that entails is literally hours of training by mental health professionals and social workers that deal with sexual abuse victims every day. And they come in and talk about the neurobiology of what trauma, sexual trauma does to the brain and how that affects the person. And more importantly, how it is a lifelong process that there are going to be dozens and dozens of triggers throughout our clients and our clients' families' life that are going to trigger these horrible memories of what happened to them. And so I wanted to make sure that not just every attorney that works on these cases, but every paralegal in our office, everybody that touches these cases or our practice group will have been through trauma-informed training. And that's been a really big part of uh, a focus of mine and for the firm. And I just want to make sure that 
the last thing I want to do when they come to Kiwanam Lad and see us as attorneys is re-traumatize our clients. And we work very hard not to do that. And I think that they'll find maybe a level of understanding and empathy that they don't get at other firms. I think that's definitely true. We've experienced it several times now where folks have come to us and they've talked to another attorney and it's cringeworthy, the things that we hear that they've said to them. But beyond that, what's interesting, I think, about the trauma-informed training is not only is it crucial and helpful in talking to clients, but even talking to opposing counsel, because they don't get it either. They don't have any idea. And so we're having to educate those folks. And I think it's leading to better results for our clients as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. So this question is for either or both of you. What do you think is important for survivors to know about civil lawsuits and working with an attorney? Or when you want to start and then I'll jump in. Well, I'll let you talk about the specifics. I, I want to sort of uh, bridge the last question and this question. And what it comes down to is having trust between the lawyer and the client. And the the training is one way that, that you have that, that trust. What I want people to know about civil lawsuits in general, not, not just any specific genre of case, is that the civil system is slow. The civil system is something that you can't just turn on and off with a switch. And that's why we think we're particularly good at having our clients trust us. So that when we tell them, no, your case is going about as quickly as it can, they, they trust us and they, and they believe in that. When we talk about strategy or what we're gonna do, it requires a lot of trust. And I think that the one thing that I would say to anybody who's looking to get a lawyer is think about what it is you're getting when you get the lawyer. Because you're not, as Greg described a little bit ago, especially in these emotional cases, you're not just getting a professional. You're not buying a commodity. And you need to be able to be patient and to have the relationship with your, with your lawyer that is comforting to you. And sometimes comforting means you have to be willing to accept that you're going to hear things that you don't like. And in the civil situation, what happens is, is that our clients have a story to tell, but it isn't just like everyone will just accept their story. So we need to hold hands with them in going through this process and they need to provide information to us. So that's a long way of saying, I think that if I want anybody to know anything about the civil system, it is that it's slow, it's not perfect, and you have to get a lawyer who you can trust. Yeah, that's definitely true. Absolutely. We just had a client, we just settled a, a very big case with some clients whose child had been horrifically abused and it took a really long time and they were in really dire straits, but we had a great relationship with them. And I think that they trusted us completely and that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. And look, it's, it's part of the upbringing that I had both as a kid in my family and then as a young lawyer working with Irwin on these custody cases. Since I was very young, I've said to every client that I ever represented, you are hiring me for this particular case and we're going to get you through it and we're going to get through it together. But once you hire me, you have a lawyer for life. And I, I mean that with all my clients. And I really, you know, I've made my career uh, and Irwin his without advertising for cases because we generally have clients that 
love us, respect us, and thankfully refer us other clients. And that is really how we've built our practice here at Conum Labs. So that's just so true. And that that's so important to have that relationship with your clients. Shaughnessy, one thing that kind of sets Coenum Lad apart in what we do, and I think this is really important to add to that to your question, is many of our clients get to us early in the process when the matter has been referred to a prosecutor and the prosecutor and the detective is just beginning to do an investigation and look at the process of bringing criminal charges against the perpetrator. And that process can be also very slow and frustrating and traumatic and painful for our clients. And what we see, and Shaughnessy, you and I have dealt with this all the time, most civil attorneys don't even interact with their clients during the criminal process because there's nothing we as civil attorneys can do to get those records until after the criminal process resolves itself, which is frustrating for everyone, but you have to know that going in. But what separates Cohen and Malad from other firms is we involve ourselves in the criminal process. We're talking to our clients regularly during the criminal process. We're preparing our clients for their deposition in the criminal case. We're talking to the prosecutor. We're sharing information that we've gathered in our investigation with the prosecutor in hopes that they get a conviction of the perpetrator. And we know for a fact other firms don't generally do that. And I think that's one thing that sets us apart from other firms that do this kind of work. So once our clients hire us very early in the process, we make not just the civil case easier for the client, but also the criminal process. And I think that is uh, really a reason to encourage clients. You want to get Cohen and Mladis, your lawyers, early so we can help you through both the criminal process and the civil process. That's actually is a really important point. And I'll give you, I'll make a confession right now. When I was a prosecutor, if I got a call from a civil attorney, I'm like, okay, thanks, Dilly. I'm like, I'm not dealing with that. And, you know, as you guys know, even when I first was coming to the firm, I was like, well, I don't know about any of that. And then uh, seriously, this is an honest to God truth. Only in researching the firm and realizing exactly what you guys do, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like they're doing awesome stuff. And now I think that we have, we've done a really good job of having these relationships with the prosecutors across the state. And they know if they hear it's us, they're like, okay, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about them coming in and doing something dumb and messing up this prosecution for us. Whereas unfortunately we have seen multiple cases where some civil attorneys did do that because they don't have any idea what goes into the criminal process. And and we do, fortunately. So I think that's a really important point. And, the, and, and not to, to toot your own horn, Shaughnessy, but you're a big part of that. Obviously, the fact that you worked in the prosecuting system for so long and you've got relationships with prosecutors all over the state, your calls might get returned a little quicker and a little more readily than if another lawyer that never prosecuted a case in their life tries to call them up and talk to a prosecutor about a case. So you're a big part of that and uh, a reason for this, the, the success that we're able to have working with prosecutors on the criminal side of cases. Well, we will just chalk that up to a miracle that they have known me and <laughs> conversations from me and they're still answering the phone. <laughs> Uh, next question, and we're about done here. Let's start with you, Erwin. Can you share with us the case or cases that you're most proud of and why? Well, there are a lot of cases where I've represented individuals that I'm really proud of because we've made a difference in their lives. But to answer your question specifically, 
back in the 1990s, um, I was involved in two sort of cases that uh, were related to each other. In 1995, uh, Conan Ladd, among other law firms and other researchers, got access to World War II documents. And that's because the, the war ended in 1945 and they were classified for 50 years. So in 1995, we learned about the efforts of the Swiss banks with regard to Holocaust victims. And what happened was, is that you had a lot of victims who went to concentration camps who had put their money, hopefully for safekeeping in Swiss banks. And essentially when they didn't come back, the Swiss banks stole the money. So a case was brought in federal court in Brooklyn and I called the lawyer who had filed the case and I said, look, we, we just like to help. You know, I, I just wanna be a part of it. And eventually the judge appointed 10 people to run the litigation and I was one of them. So uh, our partner, Richard Shevitz and I devoted several years on that case and just story after story after story about people going to the Swiss banks and the Swiss banks doing everything they can not to give them the money or recognize them, asking for example, for death certificates of their parents from you know, Auschwitz concentration camp. I mean, just impossible stories that, that you can't believe. Well, that case finally settled for over a billion dollars. And although that sounds like a, a lot of money, it was really just rough justice for those people because uh, the amounts of money that were taken were, were just, just immense. So as a tangent to that, we were involved in a case against German industry and uh, the German government got involved and it involved paying people who had been slave laborers. And what would happen was is that the uh, major corporations in Germany, including, I mean, even including uh, Volkswagen and Ford Motor Company, by the way, among others, they would use slave laborers provided to them by the Nazis. So we were able to settle that case after a lot of meetings for about $5 billion. And in those cases, I mean, Richard and I were in Washington or New York virtually every, every week. Uh, we had many trips to, um, to Germany, trips to Israel, and uh, it was really, really rewarding being able to sort of right an historic wrong and to actually be a part of that. I think that we, I don't know, it's probably not appropriate for this podcast, but I could do a whole episode on that stuff. Mm -hmm. But that, it, when I was saying before, putting research into the firm and seeing what all you had done, that certainly was something that spoke to me. I know when I was thinking about joining the firm, it, what a wonderful legacy. Like that is one of the coolest things I have ever heard of. And I can imagine that it was just deeply moving to be a part of it. Yeah, it was terrific. It was really, it was really terrific. Greg, how about you? Um, well, I don't have any Holocaust stories that involve billion dollar settlements, but I do have one sexual assault case that I'm particularly proud of. And it's really kind of the, the, the case that led us to get more serious about making sexual assault a big part of our practice here. And, that, and that's a case of a little girl who was sexually abused by her maternal 
step-grandfather when she was five, six, and seven years old. And um, she came to me after having her case declined by four or five other attorneys. And, you know, you might ask, why would attorneys decline a case like that? It's because, you know, they got to find a person that they can sue that might have money to pay them. And in this case, where a family member gets abused by a step-grandfather, there's not readily a pot of money from which you can collect. But I got a call on the case from the divorce attorney who was representing my client's mother in her divorce against the step-grandfather. And he asked me to look at the case and I, and I did. And I just decided to take a flyer on it. And uh, we started representing this family. And you can imagine the emotion involved when my client's daughter and mother were part of this mess. And then the step-grandfather was being prosecuted and ultimately pled guilty to abusing this girl over the course of years. You know, we did a bunch of work on the case. We talked to a bunch of people. And what we learned was that most of the abuse occurred at the maternal grandmother's home when she and her husband were homeschooling this little girl. And as we started investigating the case, we learned of dozens of red flags that came up that happened right in front of the grandmother that was pretty obvious that she should have had some red flags that something was going on. And we learned more and more facts that made me think that we might be able to get some money from the maternal grandmother for negligent supervision, in addition to the perpetrator, the step-grandfather. And we litigated that case for a long time. We won a couple motions for summary judgment. And at the end of the day, we were able to get not just this perpetrator, the, the step-grandfather, had two retirement accounts, one of which was protected under the law, the other wasn't. And we got that entire account for our client. And in addition, we got policy limits from the homeowner's policy from the, the uh, maternal grandmother. And so we got this little girl a lot of money that will take care of any counseling needs that she has for the rest of her life. And, and that client is, is near and dear to my heart because that was really what jump-started this practice. And I'm just particularly proud of the result we got in that case for that family. And we made a major difference in this little girl's life as a result of us jumping into this case that you know four other law firms said no thank you to. Well, that's the name of the game, right? Like taking these really difficult cases and on its face, it looks like there's nothing there, but with some strategic lawyering, you figured out how to go after it. So that's really awesome. And I'm sure that kid will uh, remember you forever. There's no doubt about that. Last question. We'll start with you, Erwin. Just any parting words that you want for our listeners to hear, survivors or professionals within this industry who are working every day to try to help these kids? Well, this is really a noble task. And as Greg said a little bit earlier, it's a task that lasts forever. It isn't like you can go to a counselor and resolve it. It isn't like a lawsuit is going to provide a catharsis. Um, what we provide people in a sensitive, caring, and professional way is one portion of their life's journey. And whatever lawyer they choose is going to impact that portion of that journey. And we think we do it really well. I would just encourage 
people to be very careful when they select a lawyer. I know that there are some professionals who would prefer their clients not talk to lawyers. What happens, and we've seen this, I don't know how many times, what happens is the statute of limitations runs, and then several years later, they say, you know, I should have done something. I didn't do everything I could for myself because the costs of counseling are significant. And it isn't just the counseling for, for the individual. I mean, the impact affects your families, your marriages, your relationship with your children. And the one way that you get to be able to pay for that is to call, call people to account not just the perpetrator, but the person who enabled it to happen if there's legal liability. So I would just suggest to the professionals who, who, who are listening, don't neglect the litigation aspect of your client's journey, because it's a very, very, very important one. And it's an opportunity that can be lost forever. Very, very strong words. So well said, Erwin. I, I can just add to that a little bit. And that is, we talk to clients all the time that because it's so hard to come forward and share your story with strangers, they don't report until they're in their 40s and 50s. And by then in Indiana, the statute of limitations is long gone. And, and Shaughnessy and I know well, we could do a separate podcast just on the statute of limitations issues in Indiana. And, and we obviously work every day to try to do something about that. But the, the struggles that our clients have when they learn that their minor has been abused by a, a teacher, by a doctor, by a mental health professional, you know, in a group home, we, we see these stories all the time and our clients struggle with coming forward and it's going to be hard. And gosh, the criminal matter has been so hard on our family. And I just don't know if I want to do anything civilly. But the one thing that we remind our clients of uh, is obviously we're going to be with you every step of the way. And as soon as you hire us from the criminal process until the very end of the civil case, we are with you and helping you through the process. And the thing that we, we remind all of our clients, and Shamsi, you and I see this every day, we never just do this to one person. It happens over and over and over again. And one of our biggest pitches to our clients is, look, this monster needs to be stopped. And if you and your family don't do something here, this is gonna to happen to other kids and to other families. And it is so important when they get the courage to come forward and talk to a lawyer and share their story with us. And we can tell them that because it never happens in a vacuum. There's always more. And the more we dig into these cases, it is just so rare that it's a one-off occurrence. And so. Anyway, I guess my advice to families who are struggling with the question, do I or do I not come forward and talk to a lawyer, at least talk to somebody, doesn't cost you a penny. Um, we are happy to meet with anybody and explain the process and how we're going to help them through both the criminal and civil process and make their life a lot simpler through the whole ordeal and give them the courage to stop the monster from doing it to other kids. So true and um, super important point because how many times have we had people, our clients decide, okay, I am gonna go forward 
and even sometimes go public. And then how many other kids have come forward after that? It just takes one. It really, really usually just takes one brave soul to step forward into the light and expose this person. And then a lot of other people are like, yes, me too. It happens in nearly all our cases. So, so sure does. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I know you're both extremely busy and I appreciate you taking the time and certainly appreciate your dedication to the community and your drive to help protect kids. I'm absolutely proud to call you colleagues and to be a part of this work with you. I truly believe that the podcast is helping people and we simply couldn't have done that without you. So thank you very much for allowing Jamie and I to do this. Well, thank you, Shaughnessy. Thank you, Jamie. I mean, we're really proud of the podcast and um, we know how hard you work at it and we appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. Please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time.